You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Matthew chapter 20, uh, title of the message, Searching for Greatness. Searching for Greatness. How would you define greatness? What are the goals of your life? What is greatness? And how do you get there? I remember when I was a young man in my 20s, uh, just 25 years old, uh, I had a, uh, a Yamaha dealership, and I was uh, uh, very young to be, uh, we had just bought our first house, I had just gotten married, and I set out to write out 10 goals that I want to accomplish in the next 10 years. 10 goals in the next 10 years. Now keep in mind, I did not get saved, Jesus didn't get a hold of me till I was 28, and I wrote these goals when I was 25. 10 goals that I want to accomplish in the next 10 years. The number one goal was to have a net worth of X. My number one goal. My number two goal was to pay cash for my second house. And my number three goal was to grow the business that I had so that I would be able to retire by the age of 35. And I went on, I won't bore you with the next seven, but I had 10 goals. At the age of 28, Jesus got a hold of my life and he saved me. And I went back and I looked at those goals that were under my uh, desk blotter at my, at my uh, office. And I would look at them, you know, just every few months. And I pulled them out after I got saved and I literally wept. I could not believe how selfish these goals were. I did not have one intrinsic goal on my list. Nothing about God, nothing about my relationship with Him, nothing about my personal character, nothing about my marriage, nothing about family. They were all materialistic, selfish, narcissistic goals. And I literally wept. You see, I had just read the book of Ecclesiastes for the first time as a brand new Christian. And I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, this is wisdom. This is the father that I never had. This is the instruction. This is the guidance. I've been, oh my gosh. And I looked at my list of goals and I thought, you are a fool. And I laid it before God and before my wife and we cried together and I told her I was sorry. And at that time, my view of real greatness began to change. What is your view of greatness? And uh, we look in the world today and we see that, wow, there is a search. Uh, there really is a hunger for greatness. Uh, and we see it being pursued in a myriad of ways. Oh, we pursue beauty. We pursue wealth. We pursue, uh, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. We pursue uh, being the best athlete. Uh, we try to show greatness on our social media pages. Uh, how do you define it? And today, Jesus is going to define it for us and show us what real greatness really is. Uh, as we pick up our story today, again, we're going through verse by verse, uh, we'll remember um, that Jesus has just been teaching about resurrection rewards. We looked at that last week. And uh, uh, by the way, that baby crying in the balcony or making noise about is music to my ears, so don't even worry about it. I absolutely love it. Um, 
So Jesus has been teaching on resurrection rewards. And now he moves and he tells the disciples about his crucifixion. That he's going to the cross. And it's a fascinating passage. Uh, follow along with me if you will. Matthew 20 verse 17 is where we're going to pick it up. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. This will be his last trip to Jerusalem. You'll remember he was up at the Sea of Galilee. He's been making his journey to Jerusalem for a while. He came down from uh, Galilee straight south going to Jerusalem. Came to the... Uh, uh, area of, um, help me, I'm drawing a blank, uh, the Samaria, Samaria, thank you, came to the area of Samaria, and the Samaritans wouldn't let him pass through. So he, he makes a, a, a journey east, and he crosses over the Jordan, comes down Perea, and then crosses back over the uh, Jordan right at Jericho, which is where he's at now. And he's now making his way to Jerusalem. He's in Jericho. It's about 11 miles away from Jerusalem. And he's coming into Jerusalem to be crucified. It's his last journey. We're only about eight days away, believe it or not, in Matthew chapter 20, from Jesus's death. And uh, all this we're going to be reading over the next several weeks is Jesus's last week of life. Just amazing. Uh, so uh, verse 17, now Jesus going to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, hey, little family meeting guys, I want to talk to you about some things. And here's what he says, verse 18, behold, or pay attention, or really see this. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Uh, incredible uh, detail there. We see something. This is now the fifth time since chapter 16 when Jesus had a shift in his ministry and he's trying to get the guys to understand his death and resurrection. This is now the fifth time that he has told them about his death and his resurrection. The uh, first time he told him, uh, Peter said, Lord, no, I will never allow that to happen to you. And Jesus came back and told him what? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of the flesh. Interesting. Peter, you don't know what you're saying. This is God's will. This is the Father's will. This is why I came for this purpose. And he moved on and went to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw Jesus in all of his glory. Why? Because he's preparing them for his crucifixion. He wants them to see who he really was before it happens. So that they will not lose faith. They will know he is God in the flesh. And now Jesus' death is one week away. And he gives this amazing prophecy that the exalted son must first become the suffering servant. Wow. That's a, uh, an important, important passage for us to really grasp and understand. Jesus is going to be teaching on greatness in just a moment. Before he does, he shows us what greatness is. The exalted son must first become God's suffering servant. And Jesus gives seven incredibly detailed prophecies here. Take a look at them, and I would encourage you to number them in your Bible. The first one he says is it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Incredible detail. Jesus, these aren't just Nostradamus, nebulous kind of prophecies. These are specific details. I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. He names the place where it is. Then he says he's going to be betrayed. Put a little number two by that one. He's going to be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes. In other words, 
one of his own is going to betray him to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Incredible detail. Number three, they will condemn him to death. They will have a trial and they will find him guilty and the sentence they give will be his execution. Amazing. Verse 19, you can put a little number four on this one. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. Uh, we know that that happened. Who did the religious leaders turn Jesus over to? To Herod, to Rome, to the Gentiles. And uh, uh, he went and uh, stood before Herod and, uh, and before Pilate. And, uh, you know, they crucified him. So he was delivered to the Gentiles, number four. Number five, they will mock him and scourge him. And sure enough, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They dressed him in a mock robe. They put a, a reed, a mock scepter in his hands. Then they put a bag over his head and they hit him in the face. And they said, prophesy to us, king, who hit you? They mocked him and then they scourged him. Scourging is horrible, by the way. It's a whip with a cat of nine tails on the end of the whip, which was bone and sharp shards that would rip in to the skin and pull chunks of flesh off. Scourging was brutal. Uh, and Jesus prophesied it would happen to him. The sixth prophecy, they will crucify him. And the seventh prophecy, he will rise on the third day. How amazing. Seven astonishingly detailed prophecies about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And I have a question for you. How do you explain that? How did Jesus give such incredibly detailed prophecies? Well, one answer that might be given is that Matthew lied. How does the Bible have these things? Well, I think Matthew lied. I think he made it up after the fact. This was written after the fact, and he made it up after the fact. And that's a very real possibility if you're a skeptic until you examine Matthew's life and Matthew's writings. And you will see that Matthew, in no way, his character, his personality type, in no way match the psychology, the psychological makeup of a liar. Pathological liars are narcissistic. And pathological liars tend to tell inconsequential lies over and over and over again. And as we read Matthew's book, we find none of this to be true. Matthew writes with incredible detail. He never embellishes anything. He gives names and places and details that are just exquisitely minute. He doesn't match the psychological makeup of a pathological liar. Nor is he narcissistic. Uh, in fact, Matthew writes with painful transparency about his own blunders and the blunders of the twelve. And so then how does uh, Jesus prophesy such incredible prophecies with such unconceivable detail about his own death and resurrection? By the way, to prophesy about a resurrection would be just... Weird. I mean, that just doesn't happen. It's not even a normal thing, right? Uh, and yet he does. Uh, and the answer is, uh, is really obvious, right? It happens exactly as Jesus prophesied. Jesus does get murdered. He does resurrect on the third day. And uh, uh, even this is even more astonishing. All of human history then changes and dates to before his coming or after his coming. How do you explain all that? How do you explain such a monumental shift in world history and that kind of prophecy? There's only one way. Jesus is what? He's God. He's the divine incarnate. Uh, just amazing. Just amazing. Uh, and 
man, he's divine. He's sovereign over all things. Everything is under his control. And uh, this morning, if Jesus is not your Savior, if he is not your God, if he is not your Lord, if he is not your boss, if he is not your authority, oh, you are missing out. You are missing out. He is sovereign over every single detail. And when we align our lives up to his will, when we enter into a relationship with him, it is then and then only that life becomes meaningful, our eyes are opened so that we set right goals and right values, and we learn to uh, how to have a relationship with our creator, and we learn, then learn how to have a relationship with each other. It cannot happen until we enter in into that relationship with Jesus. So a profound first verse that we looked at today. And I want to shift gears for a little bit. And I want you to look at this. Just think about Jesus knowing him going to Jerusalem. Knowing he was going to die. I thought about this. Aren't you glad that you do not know the day that you're going to die? Think about the anguish that must have been on him as a man. He was fully human. Uh, fully God, fully human. And as a fully human man, think about the anguish he must have experienced knowing he was going to be coming into Jerusalem to have all these things happen to him. Imagine that you knew today was going to be the last day of your life. Let me say it differently. Aren't you glad you don't know? Let's say that you were going to die tonight, and aren't you, here we are, we're here in church, and we're just oblivious and fat and happy and not even thinking anything of it. If I knew I was going to die tonight of a car wreck or a heart attack or whatever, I'd be freaking out. I wouldn't be enjoying my time with you right now. I'd be stressed. And it's actually a real gift that we don't know. Jesus being the sovereign God and also fully man, he knew the day. And uh, just incredible. And he tells the disciples what's coming. And no one, uh, none of the 12 disciples were ready for this information. Jesus receives no compassion or understanding even from his closest friends. They just don't get it. And worse still, Immediately after his prediction of his impending death and crucifixion and scourging and everything else, immediately after that, his best friends, the disciples, they start jockeying for position for their own greatness and for their own glory. Can you imagine how hurtful that must have been to the Lord? Can you imagine you share your heart with the guys and you've told them now this is the fifth time and again right after this we're going to see the next thing they start doing is going, who's the greatest of us? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Must have been hurtful. And Jesus has just taught them on these resurrection rewards and here's what happened. The disciples' minds are so enamored with obtaining this, their own greatness that they were unable to hear Jesus' words. They're just focused on their own greatness. Look at verse 20. Let's look at how this story unfolds. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Who's the mother of Zebedee's sons? Who are the sons of Zebedee? What are their names? Way to go, Bible scholars. Say it out loud one more time. James and John. We're talking about two of the disciples. James and John. John, the guy who wrote the book of John. They were called the sons of thunder because they had a radical temper. And look how Jesus changed John's life. Read the book of John. He's like... Read First John, you know, it's, oh, beloved children. He's like this soft, mushy guy, you know, just amazing, the change. Uh, uh, verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something of him, of Jesus. Jesus, I have something to ask you for. I mean, hey, I'm sure Jesus could see the setup coming, right? Verse 21. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine, these two wonderful strapping boys, may sit one at your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. What is she asking? 
she's asking, oh, I want my boys to be great, right? I want my boys to be amazing. Can they sit at the right hand and the left hand when you establish your kingdom, when you sit on the throne? She's asking for their greatness. And no doubt, they had all just heard on Jesus' teaching on resurrection rewards, and they were just thinking, yes, that's why we're following you. We want to be great in your kingdom. We've been waiting for you to set up your kingdom, and when you do, can I sit on a big, huge, honking throne? I imagine Jesus just looking at James and John's mom, and I bet he just smiled at her. I bet he just said, oh, a mother's love. Nothing like a mother's love who just loves her kids so much and wants the best for them. Uh, my mom passed, but I mean, my, my mom thought I was the best Bible teacher in the whole world, man. She just, she loved, she just you know, thought I was fantastic. It's great to have a mama, isn't it? Uh, my mom listened to my teachings like 24-7. She'd be at home and just... She had, she had, her favorite teachings were the ones that were on cassette tape, if you want to know how old I am. She would have her cassette tape recorder and just playing them all the time. Uh, the love of a mama. And uh, there's James and John. I bet Jesus just smiled at her. Uh, look at verse 22. Uh, Jesus answered and said, and it's interesting, he doesn't answer the mama. Guess who he answers? He answers James and John. Looks to them. They obviously had set their mama up with this question, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but he turns to James and John, he addresses them, and look what he says. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. What drink was he about to drink? What drink is he referring to? What baptism is he talking about? Being submerged in the cruelty of man. Being submerged in the pain and anguish of going to the cross. Being submerged in taking the sin of the world upon his own shoulders being submerged in taking David Menard's sin, all of it, on his shoulders. Your sin, and your sin, and your sin, and all who call upon him, all of our filthy, wretched sin, him who was holy and knew no sin, became sin for us, and took that sin to the cross and nailed it to the cross. And he said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized in? The cup that I'm about to drink? The cup that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he said, Lord, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And divine silence... There was no other way. And so he prays, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. I'll drink the cup. Knowing what was coming, he asked the disciples, he asked James and John, who want to sit at the right hand and left hand in power, and he asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And their answer? Yeah, no problem. We can do that. We can do that. Crazy. Crazy. Somehow the talk of Jesus' betrayal, his beating, and his death went right over the disciples' heads. How is it that they did not hear? How is it that when he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, they had no idea what he was talking about? How is it that they answered so glibly, yeah, I could do that, we could do it, yeah. How is it that they missed the message completely? How is it that they did not hear, that they did not know, that they did not care? How is it? How is it? How could they miss it completely? How many times has Jesus told them? 
five. This time with exquisite detail. How do they miss it? Well, here's how they missed it. The disciples had a predetermined paradigm. I want you to write that word down. A predetermined paradigm. Do you understand what it means? Do you know what a paradigm is? What is a paradigm? A paradigm is a vantage point. It's a view. It's a way you look at something. And they had a predetermined paradigm. What was their paradigm? Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and he's going to rule the earth and we want to be close to him when he does. That was their paradigm. And because they had a predetermined paradigm, they were not able to hear what Jesus was teaching them. We all have predetermined paradigms. We have them in our relationship with God. If you're married, you have a predetermined paradigm about your spouse. If you have kids, you have a predetermined paradigm about your kids. As a worldview, you have a predetermined paradigm about your worldview. And here's the problem. Predetermined paradigms hinder personal growth. The reason the disciples could not hear, could not see, could not understand is they had their own predetermined paradigm. And predetermined paradigms hinder our personal growth. They keep us from being teachable. In a marriage, your predetermined paradigm will cause your spouse to be saying one thing and you will be what? Hearing something completely different. As a parent, your kids will be one way and you will see them another way. They'll actually try to share their heart with you on certain things and you'll be seeing and talking to them from your paradigm. In our relationships with our boss, there's a predetermined paradigm. And it hinders our personal growth. And so we want to be wise. Uh, uh, it's interesting, nowhere do we see this more than in the political world, how our predetermined paradigms hinder our growth and our learning. I have a meme for you that's kind of funny. I saw this and I, I want to share it with you. Put that meme up on the screen if you will. Look at this. Uh, read this with me out loud. Your relentless political posts have changed my way of thinking, said no one ever, right? And look at that smug little guy there from the 1800s. That just cracks me up. Uh, uh, but isn't that so true? We have these political posts that we post all over and we try to, and all it is is a conversation of the deaf. Everybody's speaking and what? No one is listening. Why? Because we all have a predetermined paradigm and predetermined paradigms hinder our personal growth and we see that clearly here with the disciples. We want to be careful. We want to understand. Because if the disciples had a predetermined paradigm, what does that reveal? We might have predetermined paradigms. And if the disciples couldn't hear what God was speaking to them, what does that reveal? Oh, we might not be able to hear what God is speaking to us. And this is why humility is a vital character trait in relationships and in leadership. If we are going to grow in our leadership abilities, if we are going to grow in being a builder in our relationships, let me tell you why you're in a relationship. The only reason that we are in, re in relationships is to be a builder of the person we're in a relationship with, to pour into their lives, to bless them, to serve them. And if we are humble, here's what will happen. It will break down our predetermined paradigms and will actually be 
teachable. It's a vital uh, character trait for relationships and leadership. A great leader is open to different ideas, to different ways of thinking, to different ways of doing things. And it's super important that we allow humility. Humility is the character trait that allows us to be able to be open to different things. A lover who lacks humility will also lack understanding. A lover who lacks humility will lack the ability to actually hear the heart of his spouse or hear the heart of his child. He will think he knows it before he even hears it. In the scripture it says, he who, hears a, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a shame and a folly to him. And a lot of times we answer before we even know uh, the, what is being said. On the other hand, a lover who has humility will have understanding. And he'll actually be able to hear the heart of his lover, of his spouse, of his child or whatever it might be. A leader who lacks humility will lack wisdom and discernment. He will miss good ideas. He will be unable to heed wise counsel. He will lack vision for the future. Because he thinks he knows how to do it already. And he will lack vision for the future. But on the other hand, uh, someone who has uh, the character of humility, uh, he will hear good ideas. He'll be able to receive wise counsel. And he'll be able to have vision for the future. Oh, so important we grasp it. Predetermined paradigms hinder our personal growth. And humility is a character trait that is vital in relationships and in leadership. And super important. Jesus asked, are you able to drink my cup? And because they had a predetermined paradigm, they said, yeah, I like your cup. It's sitting at the right, it's being on a throne. I'd like to sit at the right hand. Yeah, I could drink that cup. And they missed completely. They said, yes, Lord, we are able. And the answer is hogwash. You're not able at all. You're not able at all to drink the cup that Jesus took. You can't even handle hardship. Uh, what will happen? Jesus knew what did happen. When hardship came, what happened to all the disciples? All of them did what? Scattered. Like scared little girls on a thundery day, they ran into the closet and hid like little kids. No offense, girls. Uh, didn't mean anything by that. Matthew 26 clearly reveals, just in case you're wondering, here it is on your screens. Let me hear you read this out loud. Uh, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out against me as, a as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. You did not arrest me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Let me hear you read this out loud. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Are you able to drink the cup? You can't even come near the cup. Yes, Lord, I'm able. I'm able. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's a question for you. When Jesus asked... Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? James and John, what are the answer? Yes. yes, Lord, we're able. And here's my question. Were they lying? Were they lying? How many of you think they were lying? How many of you think they weren't lying? They were telling the truth. Isn't it interesting how our predetermined paradigms make us so blind? Isn't it interesting how our predetermined paradigms make us delusional about our own position? They weren't lying. They were that. They actually believed it. Uh, they honestly thought that they would never deny Jesus. They never thought they would run and hide like scared kids, but they did. 
And I want us to know, boy, it is easy for us to come here on Sunday and talk about how much we love Jesus. Oh, yes, Lord, you're amazing. You're all I want. You're all I've ever needed until we leave the parking lot. It's easy to come to church and talk and be super spiritual. James and John do, but our true colors are revealed in real life. Our faith isn't revealed in a sanctuary. Our faith is revealed in a trial, in real life. And all the disciples abandoned Jesus and fled for their lives. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples were hiding on Sunday morning in a room behind closed doors, keeping it shut, locked and secure, a guard at the door so that the religious leaders could not find them because they were hiding. It leads us to a another sobering truth. Uh, these are important truths, though. Like the disciples, we often think we are more spiritual than we actually are. And this hinders our growth and our walk with Jesus. The disciples thought they were way more spiritual than they really were. And you know what? Chances are that you and I do the exact same thing. This is why humility is so important. Are you able to drink my cup? Oh, yes, Lord, we're able. It's amazing that verse 23 doesn't say that Jesus just stuck his finger in his mouth and barfed right there. <laughs> that's what I would say. That's what verse 23 should say. Yes, Lord, we are able. And Jesus stuck his finger in his mouth and he barfed right there. That's doesn't say that. It's amazing how spiritual we think we are. When I was a young Christian, can I tell you my folly, my shame, my sin? When I was a young Christian, I actually prayed. I felt I had this calling on my life to be a pastor. Uh, I wouldn't tell anybody. I was too proud to tell anybody, a false humility, uh, but I was studying diligently to, to, you know, just reading the Bible constantly and studying and uh, going to Bible college and teaching and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I actually prayed this prayer as I started learning about eschatology uh, and learning about end times events. I actually prayed this prayer, Lord, if you want me to go through the tribulation after you rapture the church, if you want me to go through the tribulation I would do that. I'd be a witness for you in the truth. I look at that now and I'm like, what an idiot. What a proud, arrogant, egotistical, self-grandizing, self-righteous, hyper-spiritual Pharisee you are, David. Oh my gosh. Trust me, I do not pray that prayer now. You know what I pray now? <laughs> Lord, I can't handle a hangnail, man. Get me out of here, right? I know what a wimp I am. But it's amazing how self-righteous we think we are. It's amazing how spiritual we think we are. The truth is this. We are ready to really serve Jesus only when we know how broken we are. Only when we know how weak and sinful we are. Only when we know that we are radically broken will we not be searching for self-greatness. And our boast will be in Jesus' greatness instead of ourself. If they would have really known how broken they were, they would have said, Oh, Jesus, it breaks my heart to hear that is going to happen. Lord, why are you doing that? Why will this happen? And they would have understood more in depth than they already did his great love and plan for them. Think about what would have happened at this point in time as James and John asked to be seated at the right hand and the left hand. If Jesus would have used the disciples now 
if he would have given them the power of the, that he was going to give them after Pentecost, if he would have given them that anointing and that power and that ability now, think about what would have happened. Oh my gosh, it would have been a train wreck. Uh, how horrible their ministry would have been. But something magnificent happened. Once they all denied Jesus, once they all promised not to, Lord, I'll never deny you, and so, so said all the disciples. Once they actually did deny him, once he washed their feet and had last supper with them, and then uh, they went and they watched him get arrested, and all of them flee, and they hide, and they watched him get whipped and scourged and beaten, and the blood splattering and nailed to a cross, and the painful, arduous death on the cross, and they all watch from afar, Peter denying him three times. Once that happened, they had a better understanding of their true self. And God was able to use them. Until that happened, their pride was a major hindrance. And a high view of self is generally our biggest problem. Our high view of self. Our self-righteousness. Thinking that we're so spiritually mature is generally our biggest problem. I am always looking for leaders in the church and do you know the character trait that I look for the most when I'm looking for leaders in the church? What character trait do you think I'm looking for the most? I'm looking for brokenness. Brokenness. Because brokenness produces humility. Humility is easy to fake. So it's hard for me to spot genuine humility because humility is easy to fake. But it's not hard to spot brokenness. You can tell when a broken, someone is broken. Jacob, his name uh, was uh, heel catcher. His name was used car salesman. His name was wheeler dealer. Uh, he was shrewd. He was crafty. He was a mover shaker. And his whole life, he wrestled with God. His whole life, he tried to squirm a deal even with God, even his relationship with God, until the time when God came and physically wrestled him and overpowered him. And God dislocates Wheeler Dealer's hip and gives him tremendous pain so that he cannot walk. And at that point, Wheeler Dealer says, Lord, please bless me. I can't let you go. Bless me. And the Lord blessed him. And he changed his name from Wheeler Dealer to what? Israel. And Israel means governed by God. Or in other words, Israel means lordship of Jesus Christ. <coughs> and from the rest of Wheeler Dealer's days, he walked with a limp. And that limp was his saving grace. I look for men, I look for women who walk with a limp, who have been broken, because that's where spiritual maturity begins. Oswald Sanders, a great author, uh, maybe you, you like his devotions, uh, he has a tremendous book called Spiritual Leadership. And in that book, he gives a quote by Samuel Bringle. Uh, I have that quote for you on the screen. I'd like you to read this. Um, read this with me out loud so I know you're with me. If I appear, oh, by the way, before I start, sorry, <laughs> just messing with you. Uh, uh, Samuel Bringle was a great preacher, okay? He was a leader in a church. Uh, so now let's read this again. If I appear great in someone's eyes, the Lord is most gracious to help me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. And helping me to keep little in my own eyes, he does use me. But the axe cannot boast of the trees that is cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. 
and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I might never lose sight of this. Oh, there's the man that God can use. He knows that he is nothing without God's Spirit leading him. And then he comes and he says, Lord, take this nothing and do something. It was interesting, Moses' first 40 years of life, he thought he was something great. Moses' next 40 years of life, he went out into the wilderness and became absolutely nothing. And when he finally became absolutely nothing at 80 years of age, God said, look what I can do with absolutely nothing who will rely completely on me. And he takes Moses and he uses him in powerful ways. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were humbled that they had abandoned Jesus at his darkest hour, that they had failed to listen to him, that they were so self-righteous, so prideful. Yes, we can drink that cup, no problem. And it crushed the disciples to realize that they were so arrogant and yet so weak. And now completely broken, they were teachable, able to learn, able to discern, able to receive vision, able to be full of grace to others, and then they were ready to be used powerfully by God. This is the Lord's way, and this is how he moves. But right now in our story, they're not there yet. And so Jesus continues to build them. Uh, instead of sticking his finger in his mouth and barfing like I would have done, here's what Jesus does, verse 23. He said to them, "You will." this is so incredibly gracious, I cannot believe it. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, and you will indeed be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and to sit on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Amazing. Before the beginning of time, God has laid out everything. The scripture tells us that God has appointed us to good works, which God foreordained that we should walk in them. Amazing. It's to him who God has prepared by my Father. Verse 24 and when the ten heard it, the ten other disciples, they were greatly what? Displeased with the two brothers. They were torqued. As the disciples unknowingly insult Jesus by not even having any compassion for him telling them he's going to be crucified and all these things, Jesus does something amazing. He speaks to them for who they will become one day instead of speaking to them for who they are right now. I, I, I marvel at that. If I had someone that was so insensitive to me, I don't know how I could ever speak to them as to who they will one day become. And yet that's what Jesus does here. Oh, it is so incredibly powerful to have someone who believes in you. Jesus believes in you. Jesus speaks to you not just for who you are now, but for who he is building you to be. Jesus is orchestrating events in your life right now, not just for where you are right now, but for what he wants to make you so that he can bring you to his intended end. Jesus speaks to them for who they are going to be, not for who they are. And it's so powerful to have someone who believes in you that way. And Jesus does. Jesus believes in you that way. Someone who sees the best in you, even when you're failing. Oh, I hope that you have a human champion in your life that way. Uh, my wife sees me that way, and I am so blessed by it. It helps me be a better man. 
I see my kids that way, and I hope it blesses them. Oh, may we emulate Jesus. May we walk in his ways, and may we believe in others and see them not for where they are now, but for where God wants to take them. And may we act in faith and walk in that. That, my friends, is true greatness. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's when our lives will be powerful. And may we emulate him, man. May we see the best in our spouse. May we see the best in our kids. May we see the best in our coworkers. Uh, may, can I be so bold? May we see the best in our pastor when he goes long. One more time. <laughs> may we see the best in our church leaders when they make a mistake. May we see uh, the best in our Christian brothers and sisters. May we believe the best just like Jesus did and may we speak to them accordingly. You know what happened? The disciples did indeed become mighty men of God. And they actually were made. Jesus built them and he equipped them and he nourished them, and he led them and guided them, and they became men who actually were able to drink the drink that he drank, the cup of persecution. They drank it. Peter was taken from prison, taken from prison to be crucified. On the way to crucify him, guess who they pick up? His wife. And guess what they do before they crucify Peter? They kill his wife. And Peter speaks these words to his life, to his wife, right as she's getting ready to be martyred. He tells her, remember the Lord. Remember Jesus. And then they take Peter and they crucify him. And what does he ask? Turn me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. Wow. Jesus speaks to them as if they're there. You are, you will be able. Just amazing. Paul, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs, by the way. Great book. Uh, Paul gave his neck to the sword under Nero, beheaded by Nero. Jude, crucified at Edessa. Thomas, thrust through with a spear. Luke hung on an olive tree. Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples, crucified in Britain in 74 AD. Andrew, one of the disciples, crucified on a cross that was stuck sideways in the ground because it wouldn't stand up by itself. They put it crucified side, side. Oh, Jesus says, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism. Wow. Speaks to them for what they are going to be one day, not for who they are now. Right now, none of them were able to endure these sufferings and these hardships, and Jesus knows it, and yet he continues to love them. He continues to bless them. He continues to pour into their life, knowing that one day they will be men of faith. They will be men of incredible character. They will be men who are used, lay down their lives to the glory of God. It is powerful to have someone who believes in you. And can I tell you something? Jesus believes in you. You might want to snuggle up to him. You might want to bow down at his feet and worship him. You might want to hold him in the highest of regard and reverence and honor. It's interesting. Uh, what did the ten do when James and John asked uh, to sit at the right hand and left hand? What did the ten do? It says they what? Are you with me today? Are you tracking? What did they do? They were greatly displeased. Why? Why were they greatly displeased? Oh, James, John, how could you do this? Unbelievable. How could they? Why were they so greatly displeased? We all know, don't we? We don't want to say it. It's so embarrassing. Because they wanted the same things that James and John were asking. They wanted to be the great ones. They wanted self-greatness. They wanted to be the ones with honor and they had envious resentment. And here's another question for you. Why is it that self-righteousness looks so much uglier on others than it does on us? 
Why is that? Why were they so greatly indignant at them when they had the same thing? Why is it that self-righteousness looks so much uglier on others than us? All the disciples had in the past expressed the same proud, selfish ideas, and they're going to do it again. And you know what the truth is, is that pride and self-righteousness die a slow death. Uh, they die a slow death. Uh, let's wrap up our text. Uh, let's look at verse 25. We've got uh, five more minutes. Let's look at verse 25. Jesus called to them to himself. I love this. Uh, Jesus called them to himself. Oh, may he do that for us. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Underline those words, lorded over them. Those, in Greek, those words in Greek are very authoritative. They, they, they lorded over them, great power over them. And those who are in those who are great exercise authority over them. Yeah, they put the biggest office in the place. They put it on the top floor so they can be on top of you. And they put the biggest plaque on their door. And they have CEO in giant letters on their title. And they call themselves PhD before their name. And don't call me Dave. Call me Dr. Dave. Uh, they... They love to lord it over you. And they do. Look at verse 26. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. I want you to notice something there. Jesus didn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. Why? Because Jesus is not against greatness. He's against self-centeredness. God created you to be great. Just by creation, you were made in his image. You are made uh, in the likeness of... You were, you've been endowed with greatness. And Jesus is not against greatness. He's against self-centeredness. And he says, listen, uh, if you want to be great, learn to be the servant. Verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, to be great among you, let him be your slave. Circle the word slave for me there. The Greek word is doulos. It means to be owned by someone else. It means to, uh, to have a master. It means that you could only do whatever your master wanted you to do. And Paul cho chose this word and he used it to describe himself. Instead of calling himself Pharisee Paul or Dr. Paul, he called himself a bond slave, a servant by choice. He, Paul used this, this, this was his title. Uh, he took, took hold of Jesus' words. Whoever wants to be great among you, let him be a slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we see how Jesus defines greatness and it's very different than how the world defines greatness. The world defines greatness as how many people... Uh, serve you or elevate you. And Jesus defines greatness. Jesus defines greatness as how many people we can serve and build up. Jesus' definition of greatness is so different than ours. Hey, this is how you can be great. Serve and build others. Be a builder of men. Be a builder of women. We call this church the mission church, and here's why. Because this is the mission that we all want to embrace. All of us have been called to the mission field, and this is the mission to learn to be the servant of all. 
to be a builder of others, to pour into them, to lay down our life. And Jesus models it so well for us. Jesus not only taught us what real greatness is, he modeled it for us. And may we see greatness as Jesus does. And may it affect our goals. May it affect the things that we're living for, the things that we're pursuing. Jesus' teaching here really needs no commentary. It's incredibly clear. If you want to be great, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, Learn to be the servant of all. And so may we emulate him. May we walk in his ways. And may we start now. Today. May we be a builder of our spouse. May we be a servant of our spouse. May we be a builder of our families, our children, our kids, our extended family. May we be a builder, a servant of them. May we be a servant to our neighbors. May we be a builder in our church. May we understand what real leadership is. I tell you what, I'm so excited about this Ezra project. Oh, I hope that you take it to heart. I hope that you humble yourself enough to say, wow, I came to church today. I got a divine assignment from God. I've got to pick somebody. I've got to pick somebody by name that I can pray for. Maybe you already know who it is. Write their name down right now. Pick somebody by name that I can pray for. And I'm going to sign up and I'm going to get a Bible and I'm going to pray about how to present it to them. And I'm going to pray about what to write inside the cover. I'm going to pray about it. Why? Because I want to serve them. And I want to show them the greatest thing I've ever met. Jesus. He's amazing. And there's a little letter in here. We're going to have people read in the book of John and start there. And, and oh, let's, get a, let's, let's just get a hold of what Jesus is doing in our church. That we would humble ourselves and serve. And may we redefine what greatness is using Jesus' dictionary. That we don't make the same mistake I made as a 25-year-old man and write out foolish goals that we're living for that will only shame me when I stand before him. Amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.